It is my very real pleasure to introduce my friend, Charles Fielding, to you all tonight. We call him Chuck. In fact, he's known as Dr. Chuck in many countries in the world. Chuck grew up in a not-so-famous place called Memphis, Tennessee. He was a... <laughs> you can take the boy out of Memphis, right? Um, went to our fine University of Tennessee uh, for medical school and graduated in 1990. He's a little bit um, self-effacing. You've probably heard the joke, what do you call the guy who graduates last in his medical school class? Doctor, right? In, in Tennessee, we call that guy Chuck. Is what, is it? <laughs> Woo! When he was still just just out of residency training, family medicine training in, in Pueblo, Colorado, he finished up and went to a small town with his wife, Michelle, in Bolivar, Tennessee, and for 18 months worked like a fiend and paid off his debt. And then Chuck and Michelle and their four-month-old son, Caleb, went with the International Mission Board to Pakistan. And for their first four years, their first term there, they moved around and lived in 11 different places. They had a lot of difficulties, a lot of illness. Michelle got dengue fever and miscarried and lost a child. They had a tough time. They were eventually kicked out of Pakistan. Instead of doing what I would have done, go home and lick my wounds, they moved temporarily to Singapore, got rid of their passports that had all the Pakistani stamps and got new passports and went 50 miles across the border into India, to Kashmir. And they worked another nearly two years there, working among the poorest of the poor, and they saw God do an amazing thing. Young Muslim men and women eventually came to faith, probably because of the work and the tears and the, and the suffering of 130 years of missionaries, but they were at the, there at the time when the Holy Spirit really moved. And after 18 months in Kashmir, there were dozens, scores of new believers. Their term was over and they returned to Memphis. Woo! And even though they were really tired, and had gone through a very difficult time, we hired them to work at the inner city health centers that we operate there. And Chuck worked half-time seeing patients and half-time teaching us how to do the same sorts of things in our community that they had done in Kashmir. And before long, if you listen too long, you'll start doing crazy things. And we moved into the neighborhoods where we, where we were working, and we started going into difficult places. If you listen to Chuck too long, you're going to end up in a difficult place. We started having church in our, in our living rooms. After another year and a half and they'd recovered, he went back to work for the IMB, and he has been a medical strategy coordinator for North Africa and the Middle East for a number of years now, seven or eight years. And he's learned a great deal about how you can use medicine, dentistry, nursing, physical therapy as a way to love and serve people and bring the gospel. He's written a book about it. It's called Preach and Heal. And we have 400 copies of this book at our cool Bedouin black tent in the display hall on the first floor. Come and get them while you can. There's no one in my life who has influenced me more with his passion to see God and Jesus Christ exalted in the toughest places than Chuck Fielding. He's really nervous right now. While we were singing, he's bantering, talking my ear off. So give him a little warm welcome as he comes. Please clap for him and get him ready. So here he comes. tried to get a hug from Rick. I try every year when I come home, Rick's not a hugger. 
It's truly an honor to be with you guys. I wasn't nervous over there. I wasn't bantering. I was crying like a baby. My church is four families, and we sit on the floor, and I'm the worst guitar player you've ever heard in your life. And three of us can sing. And that's our church. But we're the representatives for Jesus Christ in that community. And we meet it and we move from house to house and we have stories uh, and we work through God's word about what it, trying to find out what it's like to be a real disciple. I was a little freaked out when I got here and actually got transported to heaven for a 30 minutes. I, I don't know how many times in my life I've ever sung like that. And then hearing the voices of all these disciples in one place was emotionally overwhelming. And I don't usually cry. Uh, maybe it's the jet lag, I, I'm hoping. I'm not good with jet lag. I'm oriented by like one right now. I got my Bible upside down. <laughs> um, am I wearing my pants and shirt and everything? Um, okay. I'm Chuck. Here in Kentucky, I think y'all call it Chuck. <laughs> Old missionaries, all we have is a lot, of, a lot of stories of what we've seen God do. There are missionaries in this room that have got stories of what they have seen God do that are amazing. I don't have time to tell them all tonight. I'd love... I'd like to spend more time with everybody and tell you my stories. So I'm going to pull out a couple of stories that God used to teach me. I'll throw them at you. I don't expect anybody's life to get changed in a 50, no, I think they said two and a half hour talk. Um, <clears throat> you don't get changed that way. But maybe I can cast a vision for what God has taught me and then come to the cool Bedouin tent and we have our house church that we've got in inner city Memphis. Rick is one of our elders. We have other elders here. We have many people from our cool church. And by the way, in Memphis, we started a house church. And we've got, we're going from five house churches to eight house churches. Zero paid staff. All our money goes to ministry. Either in Memphis or 70% of it goes to the 1040 window to the ends of the earth. We do church the way, we try to do it the way the book of Acts says. We're not doing it perfectly, but come to our cool tent, get a book, uh, get them for free. If you want me to sign it, I usually write, I think signing books is dumb. And then, but I'll sign it. Um, come by, the students get the books for free. Uh, I think for surgeons, they're $150. Um, and... Come by and chat with us. We have many people that are passionate about being a real disciple and being relevant to the purposes of God. And that's what we're going to talk about. So I'm going to take you back. I cannot believe I'm this old. My gosh, I look at my birth certificate and I'm going, was there really a 1961? That's how old I am. I'm going to take you back 25 years ago. And uh, where's it? Can we put that picture up? I want to show you a picture of a, of a Mauritanian kid. Uh, this is not the kid, but God had called me to missions, and, and I was a creative writing major. Nothing surprised me more than when God said to me, go to medical school. I'm thinking, yeah, you can part the Red Sea. 
But do you think you can get me in the medical, into and out of medical school? I'm, I'm the laziest guy ever. I, anyway, I, I'm sorry. I'm, they call me the A-triple-D, the Attention Deficit Disorder Doctor. So I'll try to stay on task. So God said, go to medical school. I'm sending you to medical school so that you can take the gospel where missionaries can't go. I had no idea what that meant. I'd never met a missionary in my life. I did not know that there were places on earth. This is what the voice of God said to a 22-year-old boy who had spent seven years on his knees praying, God, why am I on this earth? That was the answer. I applied to one medical school. I went to West Africa, to Senegal. I immediately got a letter saying, God is on his throne and you have been accepted to medical school. (laughs) Oh, man. He's funny. <laughs> so uh, I was in the Gambia, which speaks English, and I led my first Muslim brother to the Lord, and it was cool. And I was hanging out with Africans. I was writing letters back home, and the guys in the car were making fun of me because I was signing my letters, Chuck the African. Because I fell in love with Africa and with Africans. And I lived in the Gambia and I could witness the Muslims and stuff like that. And they were very open. And then I moved to Senegal. Uh, They don't speak English up there. They speak French. And I had learned Mandinka and Jola. And up there they spoke Wolof, Nungadef. Mangi Fumek! Ready? That's, that's my Wolof. That's how much I knew. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. You know, and then in French, I knew how to say, I took everything I had learned from television and I put it together and I went into a shop and I just tried it. De éclair au chocolat s'il vous plaît. (laughs) It worked every day. If I had wanted four, I was out of luck. I can get two chocolate éclairs. Okay, I think we're still a little off task, aren't we? While I was in Senegal... The first day in Senegal, I was literally crying in prayer to the Lord saying, Why have you sent me to this desolate land where I, a talker, cannot communicate? Because I was leading people to the Lord in the Gambia, and somebody came to the door. And I thought, I don't even know how to say go away in French. So I'm not going to go there. And then, and I thought, I'm a southerner. I have to be hospitable. So I went to the gate, and this African brother spoke perfect English. And he goes, good evening. I have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was looking for someone to teach me about Jesus. I am not lying to you. The guy that lived in the house that I was with had led him to the Lord, given him a card, and said, when you want to be discipled, the guy didn't know what that word meant, go to that house. And so I'm praying, going, Lord, why am I here? You've forgotten me. You must be on vacation. And then, and this guy speaks, and I said, you speak English. He goes, yes, I also speak German. And, and he named about four African languages. And he was brilliant. And he was a college student. And one thing I knew how to do was teach the Bible. Because I got saved at 13, and I started teaching Bible classes at 14, and I became the youth director at 16 because I had a driver's license. It was a small (laughs) church. It was a little bitty church. But I grew that youth department from four to like 30. They started paying me when I was 19, and I knew how to teach the Bible. So I got this brother in there, and I started teaching him the Bible and all this academic knowledge that I knew about the Bible. I'd taken two years of Greek in college, and I was waiting on the Lord to call me to be a pastor. He didn't do that. 
You're supposed to say praise God. Um, <coughs> so, uh, about on, on this guy, about this guy's third visit, he brings with him a kid from the country of Mauritania. Now, I had seen these guys with their heads wrapped up, and they had a different color, and uh, they were riding camels and stuff. And I had asked people about them, and the missionaries went, oh, those are Mauritanians. Now, guys, you, some of you missionaries out there are going to know if this is true or not. But in 1986, the missionaries were telling me Mauritania is the most dangerous place for Christian missionaries on earth. If you convert, you're immediately killed. If you're caught with the Bible, they cut off your hand. And if you tell anybody about Jesus, you go to jail for three years. I don't know if it was true, but that's what the missionaries told me. And so, of course, a missionary would never lie. Um, Or at least that's what I thought at the time. I am one now. So, he bought this kid from Mauritania. 17-year-old boy. Ahmed, I think was his name. I think Ahmed. About every fourth person's name is Ahmed over there anyway. (laughs) And I was teaching. And we're sitting on a couch. And we look like three coffees from Starbucks. You know, like one of them is regular coffee. And then one of them is cafe au lait. And then have you seen those those vanilla frappuccino? You know, the $7 Slurpees? That's me. I was down there on the end, and we're all skinny. None of us weighed 125 pounds. We had our shirts off because it was so hot. And we had these fans going, and about four versions of the Bible open in three languages. I even had my Greek New Testament out there. And the fans are blowing across it, and all of, and I'm just teaching the Bible. Just boring old, who knows, probably second galoshes or something. I don't know. And then this, this brother, Ahmed, jumps up and the guy the the, the 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 first African guy the Wolof guy he could translate so beautifully that I remember Ahmed speaking English because that guy's translation was that fluid and he said this information is remarkable and he's holding a Bible this information is remarkable I have to go back to my country of Mauritania and tell my five brothers so that they can know about this salvation I was shocked. I, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea what to say. But I was the teacher, so I figured I better say something. That was bad. I talked too much. That didn't help. So what would you have said? He's been a disciple two weeks. He wants to go into a place where he will be arrested and he will be imprisoned for three years. He may well have his hand cut off. He may be killed. And he says, I have to go because I have five brothers. What would you have said? I said the worst thing any human being. If I had studied for 19 years, I could not have come up with a worst thing to say. I reached into my background of 10 years of being in Christ And I came up with this brilliant phrase, be reasonable. Don't you know that if you tell this to your family, they'll be obligated to report you to the authorities and you will be arrested and there's no telling what they will do to you? 
And thank goodness the Holy Spirit keeps moving. Because this kid was standing up and he was turning around and the Holy Spirit was on him. And he goes, I know, but in this book, there was this guy named Bulos, uh, Petros, Peter. And he was in jail and God sent an angel of the Lord. He broke the chains off of his arms. He opened the doors. Peter walked out free. If he did it for Peter, he could do it for me. Guess what happened? I reached back into my 10 years of American Christianity experience. And for one second, I swear it was no longer than one second, I thought, oh my goodness, this poor kid thinks those things can happen today. And then I thought, oh my goodness, what has happened to me? Of course they can happen today. When I got saved, I felt that, felt that way. The Holy Spirit inside of me testifies that that's true. What's, what's wrong with me? And the kid kept talking. And he goes, and there's these two other guys. He knew, it's like he'd been to seminary. He knew more about the Bible than I knew. He said, there's these two other guys thrown in jail. And their names were Paul and Silas. And while they were in jail, they were singing songs of praise to the Lord. And they were preaching to the people in jail. So if God lets me out of jail in Mauritania, that's good. And if he keeps me in jail, that's good too. I have to go back to Mauritania and tell my five brothers. And he he was obviously right. And I was ashamed. And all I could do was think, what is wrong with me? And then I thought, oh my gosh, they recognize me as the teacher. That's wrong. I need to sit at his feet because he's the real deal. I've done something wrong. And what I found out of, of, of... wrestling this with over over time is that i had i had created i had was a, 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 a guilty of the worst kind of syncretism now there's two kinds of syncretism i don't know what easter eggs and and little marshmallow chickens and all those things have to do with the resurrection of jesus christ but I love those marshmallow chickens and those jelly beans. Aren't those perky? And so that's a kind of syncretism, but I don't think it really hurts maybe that bad. But my kind of syncretism, what I had done was I had taken two incompatible systems and I had put them together. I had taken the American lifestyle, the American dream, and I had taken Christianity And I had merged them together into this conglomerate, this amalgam that I had been living and that everybody else that I knew of that I'd been living, and I call it American churchianity. And I don't know what you guys call it, but it was a lot of the American dream and it was Jesus on the side. And the American dream, we highly prioritize personal Comfort. We highly prioritize personal security. We highly prioritize personal ambition, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of affluence, the pursuit of the American dream. Every Christian that I knew of was living in mega houses and driving mega cars. They still do. The, the, the Christians that I know of in America, they look exactly like the pagans. I can't tell the difference. But the cool thing is, 
They get to live the American dream and they get to go to heaven when they die. And that's what Christianity was for me. You just do it the same way you did when you were lost, but you coast right into heaven. And then I saw Ahmed and he was like, no way. You take your body and you take a squirt gun and you charge the gates of hell. I mean, he would throw his self on a grenade for Jesus Christ. He, was going, he had no interest in personal comfort, personal security, no personal ambition. What my problem was, it was not a crisis of belief. It was a crisis of identity. Because of the world that I had lived in, all this American churchianity had been modeled for me. And that's the identity that I took on because that's what everybody else seemed to be doing. And I didn't want it anymore. I didn't want to be that kind of a Christian. So I took up my Bible and I thought, what is a Christian? I'm going to look it up. Guess what? I turned to the back, concordance, Christian, Christian. How many times is Christian in the Bible? Three, never, never does a follower of Jesus say, I am a Christian. Every time it's when someone refers to us. King Agrippa told Paul, do you think in such a short time you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Peter said, don't be ashamed when they call you a Christian. In Acts it says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We were called Christians. That's not... There's no definition of Christian in the Bible. So what are we? Are we converts? We're converts only four times in the Bible. Paul called himself a follower of the way. I like that one. I'm a wayer. <laughs> I don't know. This kind of goes with Weight Watchers or what? I don't know. It just makes me. That's the reason I wore vertical stripes. So that. <laughs> Sorry, my wife insisted on that. When I come to America, I do have a tendency to. I, the first thing I did was I went to Walmart and I bought eggnog. I love being in America at this time of year. I'm off track again. <laughs> so I teach this a lot. I teach this a lot. And guys, I wanted to stand up and teach you ha- how to do health strategies because I, the Lord has allowed me to go to Kashmir and Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Afghanistan, Mauritania, Darfur. I I don't know how many countries the Lord has allowed me to go to and use health strategies as a tool to advance the gospel where it's never been before. And I want to tell you those stories and tell you how we've stumbled onto things that work and don't try this because it doesn't seem to work. But I can't tell you why, how. Until we lay the foundation of why. Why do we do this? Because if you don't get this right, if you don't build a proper foundation, the whole thing will come crashing down. And you're going to understand what I, what I mean in a minute. So what I do is I go to, to Luke 14. And that's easy for me to remember because Luke was a doctor. And being a doctor is the wisest thing that can be done with a human life. And 14 is half of my age. <clears throat> so it's easy for me to remember Luke 14. And then I underlined the verses that I like. Now, 
I wasn't wise enough to remember that I'm an old man now and sometimes I need my old person glasses. So I'm going to get down. Can somebody come up here and read this for me? Just kidding, Margaret. Okay, so I'm going to read you three verses that tells you who we are. What's our identity? Are we Christians? Are we converts? Are we believers? The word believers is in the Bible 27 times. No, 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 no. We are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that that word is so important is because it's the only word Jesus ever used. And it's 295 times in the Bible. And it is clearly defined for us. How we will think and how we will behave. And Ahmed was a disciple. Took me a long time to find it in the Bible. But if you want to find out who we are, a good way to do it is turn to Luke 14 and listen to some of these verses. This is where Jesus sets the bar. You can't get started running down this path of medical missions if you're not willing to clear this bar. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's the first bar. Now, I'm madly in love with Michelle Cheatham. She is the cutest thing God ever made. She's adorable. She's funny. She's smart. When she wears funny, fuzzy pajamas, and I hold her, mm. but guys, I love Jesus Christ because he dropped blood on the ground for me and for you, and he bought my way into heaven. Michelle couldn't buy my way into heaven. And so earlier today, when I, before I came here to pray, I took my wedding ring off. I took off my shoes because that's what we Muslim guys do. And I took off my wedding ring. And when I pray, I take my wallet out and I take my watch off because those, those were American icons. And I put my knees to the ground and my face to the floor. And I say, Lord, do not allow me to listen to my family and disobey you. What if Ahmed had had a wife and she had said, no, honey. I don't want you to go there because you may be arrested and then you can't provide for me and the kids. Happens continually to our brothers in China. It happens to our brothers around the world all the time. Brothers and sisters around the world are making a decision. Do I play it safe and support my family and, and be a good provider or do I pastor a church and go to jail for five years just like I did before? And there. Hopefully their wives are saying, you obey Jesus Christ. I've, I've risked my life. I've risked my family's life again and again. And my wife says, go, try to come home. But you obey Jesus Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. She's not, I, wouldn't that be horrible if I made Michelle an idol before Jesus Christ? My children an idol before Jesus Christ. You must... Be willing to hate your mother, your father, your wife, your children, your brothers or your sisters. Yes, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. And that's just the first one. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Where do you carry your cross? Where did Jesus take his cross? 
He took it to Golgotha to be executed. (laughs) Unless you're ready to go today to be executed, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Ahmed could do. I've learned how to do that. (laughs) It's easy. It's very easy. Once you just realize, gosh, we walk by faith and we believe in God. Maybe he will bust the doors open. Maybe I'll die. It doesn't matter. I have to go to Maratani and tell my five brothers. The blood of Jesus demands it. I met a Somali guy not long ago. I was in Ethiopia. We're drinking the best coffee ever. And I said, how did you come to the Lord? And he told me this incredible story. And then he said, therefore, because I discovered that Jesus died and paid for my sins and gave me salvation, therefore, I realized I would be his minister every day for the rest of my life. It was, a cause, it was cause and effect for him because he hasn't been contaminated by American churchianity and maybe that's part of the problem. I don't want to judge the church too much. The church is the bride of Christ. But we've, dis, we've inherited a legacy that's not always healthy and we all know that. And we're trying, and I believe this next gen- generation is going to do it. We're going to bring about a healthier church. But this brother in Somalia said, because I'm a follower of Jesus, therefore, I will be his minister every day the rest of my life. Had nothing to do with personal ambition, nothing to do with prioritization of comfort. Didn't expect to get anything out of it, probably except torture and beating. I think it's funny when I come to America, I listen to Christian radio because I love this stuff. And they always go, positive, encouraging. I'm going, that's American Christianity. In my world, it's suffering and martyrdom. But you can't market that. <laughs> and that's the deal, isn't it? Marketing drives a lot of what we do. Let me, let me read a little bit more of Luke 14. It's easy now. You've given up all your family. You've given up your life. You're ready to die. And then he says, throw this one in. If any... In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. All possessions. So you give up your rights to your family, and you give up your rights to your own life. And that, by the way, that means every microsecond of your future and every penny in your, and then every penny in your bank account. Martin Luther knew this. Martin Luther was a leader of the Protestant Revolution and he wrote a beautiful hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God and he said let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever. He nailed all the points out out of Luke 14 let goods and kindred go this mortal life also The reason that this is important, you have to nail down your own personal identity as a disciple. Because otherwise, you're not going to be able to be a disciple maker. The Apostle Paul recognized this and he put it all throughout his writings. We get the passion of Paul over and over and over. Bring up that verse for me. Oh, oh, this is great. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Can't you hear the passion of of 
disciple mathetes in that. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's counterintuitive. It's antithetical to human logic. It's right, isn't it? The spirit inside of us testifies that it's right. Here's a great verse. The spirit himself testifies that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If, indeed, we share in his sufferings, that we may also share in his glory. Suffering is part of being a disciple. When the apostles were beaten, they went out and said, Praise God that we were found worthy to be beaten in the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to this one. Paul also says, whatever was to my, For whatever was to my profit, I, can now, I now consider as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now this one is key, because think about who Paul was. He had spent all of his life trying to climb to the top of the ladder and be somebody important. He'd gone to the best seminary under Gamaliel, he'd become a Pharisee, he became a teacher, All that stuff was his to his prophet. He had great credentials. And he said, whatever was to my prophet, I consider loss. It's considered as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. How about you? How about your professional identity? Being a doctor, being a nurse, being a dentist. Do you consider that rubbish? Is that trash? Will you walk away from that right now? That's what it costs to be a disciple. I had a guy tell me, he was a cardiovascular surgeon, (laughs) and he said, if I never pick up another scalpel the rest of my life, it doesn't matter. I have to take the gospel where it's never been before. Guess what? He's cracking chests in the backside of Afghanistan, and he's famous, and he's advancing. God gave it back to him. But I had to say, if I never deliver another baby, if I never write another prescription, if I never pick up another scalpel, it does not matter. I'm going to obey Jesus. Luke was a doctor. He gave it all up. How many people are in heaven because Luke wrote the books of Luke and the books of Acts? Maybe more people than... He's maybe responsible for more people in heaven than any other human. That's what a disciple is. A couple of years ago, I was in Iraq with a whole bunch of people from different nations. And uh, we were going, trying to, I don't know, we were with many different organizations. I was the only non-Arabic speaker. Two Americans, two Swiss, a Palestinian, a Syrian, a Lebanese, I don't remember, there's a guy from the U.K., and bandits pulled up alongside of us with machine guns. I'll never forget. The guy driving is like 19 years old. And the people behind us got stopped. And he goes, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And then this guy pointed a gun right at his head. He goes, I know what to do. <laughs> and he put his foot on the brake. And these guys pulled over and they jumped in our car with machine guns. And they drove us off in the wadi, which is the low place, a valley, washed out valley. And I thought, well, duh, I know what they're going to do. They're going to pop the 11 of us in the head. Actually, two of us had gone. So they're going to pop the nine of us in the head and take the vehicles. They're Land Rovers. I thought, no big deal. I'm ready to die for Christ. Uh, actually, what I, I didn't 
Never, I'd never thought it through. I was ready to be dead for Christ. <laughs> when I got like this, and a guy put a knife at my throat, and that was no big deal. But when I got like this, and the guy pointed a machine gun at my head, I thought, being dead for Christ, no big deal. Got total peace. Dying for Christ. High projectile, piece of metal penetrating my... And just like then all of a sudden I could remember all the cutaneous nerves and all this stuff. And, you know, how long will it take before my brain stops? Does it matter? You think about that stuff. Until the gun goes down and then the piece comes back and then the gun comes up and the anxiety... And this went on for like an hour. These guys were better than customs agents. They took all of our money and then they went through our luggage and took out our sunglasses and like my favorite fuzzy house slippers. And I mean, if, if it was cool and cushy, they took it all. And then they just left us in the desert. And we stood out there, pitiful little flock, holding hands. And the, the lead guy was with a, with a group called OM. A really impressive group, and I'm Baptist, and then Frontiers was also there, and we all worked together overseas, and uh, in the in you know Iraq, the war was still going on in the north. This was like in April, and the leader was Australian, and so we got in a circle, and we started praying. And the first thing he said was, "Well, Lord, you said you sent us out like lambs among wolves," and then he kept praying, but I didn't hear anything else. I couldn't get over that because I'd been living in the Middle East. Actually, I was living in Istanbul at the time. I was visiting the Middle East. You don't see no lambs out there walking around by themselves. They don't ever do that. You know what a lamb is? A lamb is a baby sheep. It's like popcorn to wolves. I mean, they're 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 like like wolf bonbons. And he's saying, I send you out like lambs among wolves. I'm looking out the window, we're driving through the desert and going, how many groups of two lambs do you ever see walking? Never. Their only defense is to get into a group about this big and try to get in the middle and look thin. (laughs) And hope that the guys on the edges get eaten. That's how they do it. That's how they survive. And Jesus said, go, I send you out like lambs among wolves. He intended that some of us would get hurt and some of us would get eaten. It's the right thing to do to go regardless of the consequences. And at the time I was memorizing Romans 8 and this thought came to me. And it's, it was Romans 8. It says, for your sake... We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's who we are. And the reasons it's important. Oh gosh, Hezbollah. <laughs> Forgot about that one. Okay, I finally got it through my head that uh, I was a disciple. So I went into Lebanon after the war with a couple of guys. They happened to be Arab disciples. And they honestly, we had a discussion and they said, I wonder what would happen if we sent an American. And the Arab guys go, I don't know, they may kill him. And then somebody said, let's send Chuck and find out. <laughs> I, I said, guys, I'm sitting right here, but I'll go. And so we left like the next day and we went to Lebanon 
And Hezbollah and, and the Jews had just had a big fight and they would pull up into a town and you could smell death everywhere. Bodies were up, corpses were up underneath the rubble. People were sitting outside wailing. There was total devastation of houses. And they'd say, Chuck, stay in the car. And we were giving out bags and bags of water and free stuff to people, cleaning supplies. And then they would, every time they come, they go, come on, they need a doctor. So I'd go up and I'd take out my stethoscope and about the first or second time, I sat on the steps, about a 13-year-old girl, hello, sweetheart, how are you? I'm just going to, I tried my Arabic and I go, don't, don't, speak your, don't speak your Arabic. It's pitiful. It's making it worse. You're just making it worse, man. So I was like, hello, sweetheart, I'm just going to listen to your heart. And all, of, all of a sudden, this guy started yelling at me and screaming at me and I could barely catch any of it. He, he didn't say nice things about George Bush. Uh, uh, I caught that much. And he yelled about George Bush. And, and basically he said, how dare you drop bombs on us, kill us, and then come here to patch us up. And I listened to it. And the Holy Spirit gave me the right words to say. And I looked him in the eyes. And I mean like 45 people were pushing in on me. And I was sitting on the steps. And they're all standing up leaning on me. And they're yelling. And they're shaking their fists. And we can smell their dead family members around us. Sitting in the rubble. They needed an object to be angry at. And I'm very white with blue eyes. And I speak English and I wear blue jeans. I glow American. And I said, I'm so, so sorry for your pain. But you misunderstand. I was born in America. But that's not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. And I, my, George Bush is not my king. Jesus Christ is my king. I am his disciple. He specifically sent me here to care for the poor and to tell you good news. And then I got all those Arabic kisses. You know, this kind of stuff. And later that night, I got to share the gospel sitting with... Ten Hezbollah leaders with their walkie-talkie and they loved it. And the point is that if you're not this kind of a disciple, you can't make disciples. If you go out as an American Christian, I tell people this all the time, I said, you know, you, you go as an American Christian and you go to Pakistan and you make 12 Christians like you and you come back a year later and you got six Christians. You make 12 Baptists, you come back a year later, you got six Baptists meeting in two churches of three. <laughs> but if you make disciples, you, put, you start a ripple effect. You put in place the mechanics to move the gospel across entire regions. The book of Acts tells us that, that Paul and Barnabas took the gospel into Pisidian Antioch. They made disciples... And then the gospel spread throughout the whole region. They, our job is not to disciple nations. Our job is to make disciples among all nations. And those disciples make disciples, make disciples ad infinitum. It's a cool thing. That's the first point. I'm a disciple. I'm sorry it took me so long to do it. I want to get to the last part. And that is, what is the passion of a disciple? Okay, I'm a disciple. I got that in my head. I got my identity. So what? What do I do with it behavior-wise? 
And what I want to tell you is just simply this. The passion of, this, of a disciple has to be the passion of our Father. The passion of our Lord who came and died for us. And we find that written all throughout the Bible. It's their passion for the nations, for all nations. I'll do three quotes. I was recently in Bristol, Tennessee, and uh, we, I wrote down on some index cards just some verses from the Old Testament about all nations. And there were 35 people there that morning, and we did chapel, and we stepped, we read 35 verses about God's passion for the nations, mostly from the, God, from the Old Testament. It, it, beautiful verses. I mean, they go all the way back to Genesis. Surely, Abraham, I will make a great nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed because of him. All nations. That word nations doesn't mean countries. It means ethnic groups. All ethnic groups on earth will be blessed because of Abraham. Later it says in Isaiah, The Lord will lay forth, will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all, all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come to me, says the Lord God Almighty. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The, the Old Testament is replete with verses that talk about God's passion for all nations. He didn't come to die for Jews. He came to die for people from every nation on earth. It says, even now he, was, he is reserved for himself a remnant chosen by grace. Peter, why do I have this verse about Peter? Peter said, um, the earth, let's see, he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Yeah, this is good. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The... Um, let's turn to it real quickly. It's in Second Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The earth, I remember now, um, the heavens will be destroyed by fire. The elements, uh, sorry, the, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this manner, what kind of people ought you to be? Now, he set it up pretty good, didn't he? Everything that you do on this life is really irrelevant because it's all going to burn up. So how can you be relevant? What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You can bring about the return of Christ by getting on board with God's agenda to advance the gospel to all nations. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things. All nations. In Revelation, it says, he is worthy because with his blood he purchased men for God, 
from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We live in a temporary time, an age of the curse, in which the earth was cursed. And we're waiting for the day when that curse will be removed. And that curse will be removed when the gospel of the nation, when this gospel of the kingdom, that, 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 that Jesus became a curse for us, when this gospel of the kingdom has been preached as, and the whole world is a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. That's Matthew twenty four fourteen. I want to tell you quickly about where are these places where the gospel's never been. They're called unreached people groups. It's a hard term for a lot of people because people say, well, my neighbor's an unreached people group. No, they're not. That's an unevangelized individual. Everybody in America is reached because they all are within reach of a Christian or a building or a church or a radio station or something like that. So the definition of an unreached people group, I, it's not a great definition, but there is no indigenous community of disciples with adequate numbers to evangelize this people group. Bring me a slide, buddy. Here's the map of where those people groups are, and they're red. And you'll notice that they are virtually all Muslim from West Africa, across the Arabian Peninsula, across Iran, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Pakistan, and then we get into Hindu India, pick Muslims back up in Bangladesh, we got Muslims again. There's some. Of the, there's also some unreached Buddhist people groups. But the vast majority are, of these unreached people groups are Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist. Let me try to give you an example of what an unreached people group. What it means to be unreached. Let's say I had a little bitty oil lamp, and we find these all the time in, in my country in archaeological digs. And I hold a little bit of oil, and I light a lamp. And I take it over here and I share it with some people. And then I take it over here and I share it with some people, with some groups of people. And I share light with them. And then I run out of oil or I get tired and I quit. And then Dr. Rick comes with a lamp and he comes over here to these people and he shares some light with some of you. And he shares some light with some of you and then he gets tired. And then missionary Martha, she comes and she does the same thing. Okay? Not all of you will hear the God, will see the light. Not all of you will, will, will get to be able to read something by the light. And you people, the light never reached you. You won't know that the light existed. That's what those red areas represent. They're people behind an iron curtain where they'll be born, they live their lives, they die, they never hear the gospel. Reminds me of Rick and I went to uh, northern Afghanistan, and we met some uh, Tajik kids. And these were this was in Afghanistan, but these little girls, we held Rick and I held many a baby that are now dead. We held many a baby that were dead within within the week or two. We could tell many of these children are not alive now, and that was just ten years ago. But all of them, statistically, they have a negligible chance of hearing the gospel. They'll live to the age of 47. They'll never shake hands with a disciple. They'll never hear that Jesus purchased their salvation by his blood. In Darfur, this woman, 
is squatting and waiting for water. I have just seen her. I took that picture two years ago. She poured gorgeous clean water into that plastic bucket, and now she's waiting for the mud puddle to fill up again. So there's two tragedies in her life. One is she waits two hours every day to get enough water to take home to her family while a line of people were standing behind her. This was four months before the rainy season. I have no idea how they survive. They are cut off from medical supplies, any kind of help, clean water, and they're in the middle of a war. And that's a horrible physical tragedy. But the worst tragedy is that she's going to live her entire life. And as a woman, she doesn't speak Arabic. She could never hear the gospel in shortwave. Statistically, she'll live her whole life and never hear the gospel. In Darfur, on another trip, um, I was summoned to an emergency because a woman five months pregnant was uh, giving premature delivery. And when I got there, I palpated her abdomen, and there was a large mass on the left side. And turns out she was five months pregnant, but she hadn't had a bowel movement in nine days. Uh, she had constipation. It was not a precipitous delivery. And so... I was walking with the commander of this force that fights, and I asked him, what is this war about? And I already knew the answer. And he goes, these people, they want to make us to be Arabs, and they want to make us to be Muslims. They're very proud of the fact that they're Africans. Now, the Arab Africans and the African Africans look exactly alike. But one, of, one group has decided to become Arabized and take on the African language. And the others have said, no, we'll, we'll hold to our ancestral roots. So I said, he said, they want to make us to be Arabs. They want to make us to be Muslims. I said, yes, but you already are Muslims. He goes, yes, but we, don't, we won't want to be made anything. So we found that they came every night to hear the gospel. They came at night in groups of two. Tell me again more of these stories about Jesus. And we've led over 20 people to the Lord there. Started the first indigenous church among that people group. But guys, in Darfur, there are 6 million people, 25 ethnic groups. And we've got 20 disciples among one of them. And we are one of two teams that are trying to help the poor and make disciples among six million, an area the size of France. Please understand me. Hear this clearly. I may alienate a third of the room by saying this. I am not implying that we should redeploy our troops to the ends of the earth. I am stating overtly that if we do not redeploy our troops to the ends of the earth we are guilty we are not obeying the great commission we are not following apostolic tradition and we are not being good stewards of the gospel of salvation let me show you a video father to, to know you is everything but our human passions are only passionate about ourselves. Take out our hearts of selfishness, our hard hearts, 
that are passionate about this world and that are adulterous and still loving the things of the past that want to be friends with the world, take out those hearts and put in hearts of humility and hearts that burn with your passion that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations so that this age of curse and age of deception, this age of wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters, so that this age of the prince of hell's temporary reign, so that that age can be over. We pray that thy kingdom would come on earth as it does in heaven. I pray this in the name of our King and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Go make disciples of all, ma- of all nations.